The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. My next guest didn't have the conventional route to getting a doctorate in neuroscience. He was a heroin addict for 15 years, almost died on the streets of Dublin before turning his back on drugs and pursuing a career as a university lecturer and author. He's now on a mission to transform the lives of young people and perhaps help them not to follow down the early path of his life. His name is Brian Penny. Brian, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Pat. Great to be here. Now, uh, tell us, uh, first of all, about uh, your early life and how you ended up in addiction. Yeah, so so I, I had, I, ca- I came from a home, a, a, a good home, you would say, like lo- really loving parents, but I had a lot of trauma in my earlier life as well. So I also came from a, a disadvantaged area, lovely area, but socio-economically disadvantaged area. And I had an operation at a very young age, two weeks of age, and it was to do with twisted guts, intestinal malrotation. And prior to 1985, operations like that were done without a general anaesthetic. Okay. Crazy. So complications from that surgery. So, So what I know now from my own experiences in psychology and neuroscience is that that experience and the complications from that surgery basically shaped me as a finely tuned anxiety machine. So Yeah, I mean the world, if that's your early experience of the world, yeah. that you're effectively being tortured. Yeah. Um, y- you know, you're going to be anxious about every everything and every everything. encounter. Everything. And I, I, I grew up like with a phobic fear of my heartbeat, my breath, my pulse, full of anxiety, full of worry. And basically, I found my anaesthetic in in her in the shape of heroin at a, at an early age, and that was sort of that was it for me. I, it gave me a sense of safety in my body, yeah. and it really had me from the first now, moment. How old were you at that point? So I start I start dabbling in drugs at around fourteen, but I used heroin for the first time when I was sixteen. Okay, how long did that go on? Well, I I was see I was. I always thought I would do well in life, so I was a master in self deception, and I didn't think I was going to be a real addict. So I used heroin on a weekly bi-weekly basis for a couple of years but when I was 20 years of age I was chronically addicted using daily and I went on to a methadone program and heroin program so 15 years chronically addicted 15 years yeah H- how low did you go I mean w- were you living on the streets were you thrown out of home no not, nothing like that it wasn't it was really interesting because and, and this is sort of people kind of have this stereotypical train spotting idea of yeah. what a heroin addict is like I was a functional addict like up until two te- up until near the end, I was working in a printing industry as a graphic graphic artist. Yeah. Ironically, designing methadone labels and anti-anxiety <laughs> medication labels. You could not invent it. I couldn't invent it. I was sitting there like absolutely feeling so sick, wanting the drugs. I was actually putting on the screen, and it was crazy. So I was, um, but. The last couple of years, it really went downhill. I stopped functioning and I became what people do think of more stereotypical. And I lost everything. Me, me family, I really great support network with my family. But even they had to pull away from me in, in the end because anyone that came into me orbit, I was just causing havoc in their lives. So I'd lost everything at that point at the age of 35. So how did you then turn it around? It was basically luck. That's what that's what I bring it down to. I I often say like a perspective shift, an awakening, dumb luck. I I don't know the words for it, but when I lost my job and everyone pulled away, and I was in I was in fifty thousand euro of debt to money lenders, drug dealers, and banks, and I had no way of getting money anymore. Like 
the drugs, heroin wasn't working anymore. I often say it was like a snake trying to eat its own tail. It was making me worse, not better. And I went to uh, do, a, do a detox for the first time ever. I says, I'm going to try to get clean off drugs. I had no choice. And was this going to be a cold turkey uh, type experience? So, well, I tried to get into a, a detox facility, but I was taking a lot of benzodiazepine as well. So Valium and Xanax, mm. like an awful lot of them on top of methadone and heroin. And apparently you can't go into an opiate detox while you're taking benzodiazepine. So I had to do a benzo detox first. And I had to wait eight weeks for that. So I done a cold turkey benzo detox in my house on my own. And I described and was that. that like train spotting? Yes. So two days into that was not only the most painful experience in my life, it was the most important experience in my life. And I had what's called a grand mal convulsive seizure. So it's when every neuron in your brain just fires at the same time. And I was like just pulsing and convulsing on the floor. And I literally split the centre of my tongue. I bit into my tongue, blood everywhere, rushed to hospital, shocking experience. And funnily enough, I call that the most important moment of my life because when I was lying in the hospital on a, on a hospital trolley later that night, I remember thinking I was brain damaged. I, I couldn't make sense. I couldn't verbalise my external world. And I said, oh my God, you, you've destroyed your brain. Game over. You can't yeah. come back from this. And I remember just lying back on the trolley waiting to be overwhelmed by panic attacks and anxiety, which drove my entire addiction. But I felt a sense of peace come over me. And it was like I put up the white flag. I stopped fighting anxiety and my own mind. And even though I was broken physically, mentally and emotionally, that was the start of a shift in perspective. Now, presumably they knew why you were there, that you had gone cold turkey on yeah. the, the benzos. So they didn't give you anything. No, they <laughs> gave me nothing. And I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything against them. I, I barely have good memories of the event, but there was nothing they could really do. And I think they, I think they thought it was a bit of a drug overdose as well. It was mixed messages. I could barely talk because mm. of me mouth. So my family were giving messages and they, they didn't really know what was going on. But I would, they left me in for a, for a night and I was sent home the next day. I had another couple of seizures, another couple of hospital visits. But I finally got the benzos out of my system and then went to a heroin detox. And it was during that detox that I start becoming obsessed, you could say, addicted to a new way of living and that was education, learning, health and the journey started there. Yeah. Um, what's fascinating is that even after the grand mal seizure and you end up in hospital, that you somehow found the determination to continue with the uh, detox uh, procedure with the benzos with the benzos do you know what there was a time there was a time while I was in my house um, going through the because I stayed in my house I didn't even go to bed I just stayed on the sofa for about three to four weeks my brother was one of my two brothers was starting to mind me through the withdrawals and there was a couple of times that I was going through so much anxiety because the reversal of taking it when you take a drug and you go cold turkey you get the reversal of the effects so I was feeling anxiety to levels I'd never experienced before but I physically couldn't get out the door to get drugs so that was my saving grace because I met that would have been a breaking point for me that I was just in so much pain I was looking for something but I got lucky there too So having done it yourself on the benzos then you you got help with the the heroin addiction Yeah six weeks in a detox little farm on the outskirts of Dublin Okay not not everyone gets access to that kind of facility there aren't enough places it would uh, seem to to offer everyone uh, who needs one So then the next phase of your journey uh, deciding that living well is your ambition 
Yeah, yeah, and and it happened. It happened pretty quick. It really did. Like I, I started doing the opposite of everything I'd done in addiction. I joined a gym. I signed up for college straight away. So I done a degree in psychology in Manute University, and my newfound lust for life and education really helped me because. I kind of have an obsessive mindset now. I've balanced over that now, but I would have been, I wanted to learn quick and I wanted to learn more. I think addiction is like an, an addiction to more. If it feels good, mm. you want more, which part of me PhD research was exploring that construct of wanting more in terms of addiction. And yeah, that just set me off on, on a journey in a completely different direction. Now, what uh, do you do now in terms of looking at maybe the, the kind of lad that you were at age, you know, 12, 13, 14, that led to that life? I mean, are you trying to st- stop that happening to other kids? Yeah, 100%. I, I, I love personal growth and I, lo- I love all of the tools and tactics that go with it. I sort of combine like my lived experience with the two, with the, my academic expertise, neuroscience and behavioural psychology. And I do a lot of work in the corporate environment, like with courses and keynote talks. But what my love is, is around like, I don't work in addiction. A lot of people think I work in the addiction services, but I, I don't do that because it's very, it's very challenging. Um, I haven't got the expertise for starters. I have my lived experience. But I think if I could get, if I could give the tools that I needed as a young kid and give them to young kids as preventative tools. So when I went back to college, I I designed what I call a program for life, a program for my own life. Then I start delivering that to other people and that sort of created the whole business that I run. But now I'm delivering it. It's a pro bono thing that I do in skills. And I'm just trying to deliver the best components of that program to the young kids of the tools that I needed at that time. Yeah. Now, you work in schools um, and you've got various projects on the go. What happens like you're a lot older than the kids you're going to be meeting. Yeah. Um, so what happens when you come into the classroom? What do they expect from you? So this is the big challenge. So I went into the classroom. So the programme we're doing in Killinarden Community School, great, great programme there with the Career Guidance Councillor Hannah as well. It's sort of a double, a jo- a double pro- a a joint venture that we did together and I went in thinking I was going to deliver my programme but the kids are not really interested in another lectury type of person yeah. coming in and delivering a programme so what I found over time was I go in and I talk about stories I try to speak to them on their level the advantage I have is that I have a lived experience that they're very familiar with these are kids that had a lot of struggles a lot of trauma in their life so that gives me an edge in terms of relating me to them but the age gap is still a big difference and that's a challenge so I, what I found is over time it's just going in and having good honest conversations with them learn off them find out what's going on in their lives and facilitating conversations yeah. now I can imagine you go in and there's a, a class full of young people and the lads maybe don't want to share with you yeah. because they'd be the hard men of the class. They don't yeah. want to show any vulnerability at all. How do you get over that? Do you know what happened? One of the biggest things, and it sounds very silly actually, because some of them, they're young, younger kids as well, and they were getting the giggles one time, and it was nearly like, no kids get the giggles. It's like, as an adult, you're sort of like, and I remember the teachers were sort of saying, will you stop laughing? And I sort of got a little bit of the giggles as well. And that was probably one of the most biggest breakthrough moments where he says, he really is like one of us. Like, you know, he's a child at heart. And that was a moment in that as well. Well, but what I found is the biggest thing to get through and help them to be vulnerable, it's time. 
it's them getting to trust me, getting to know me, having them conversations. I went in and I had a lot of one-on-ones with them as well. So having that one-to-one conversation as well, away from the, the group dynamics, that was powerful. And then that shifted the group dynamics. So there's a level of trust there where they can just trust me. And, and that was yeah. really, really important. And if you get some of the kind of leaders in the class to trust you, then other people will follow their lead. Definitely. Definitely yeah. so. Now, what about taking them out to the, the countryside? Now, Tala is in the foothills <coughs> yeah. of the Dublin Mountains. In fact, it's in the Dublin Mountains, re- really. Um, you brought them out to the great beyond. We did. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a forest out in uh, Kiltearn and it's called Woodsmen is the name. If anyone wants to have a look on it, on Instagram or anything like that, it's Lucas the guy there. He's, he's, he's fantastic. He is and he gave us free access to his. It's like a forest that they have and it's basically forest bathing. So it's that's a Japanese term. So we brought them in. It was, it was actually out of my comfort zone to be quite honest to an extent. But we brought them out to the forest and we walked around and we done mindfulness interventions. Sort of, not interventions, just mindful experiences walking around the forest and it was just very very different it was lovely it was but they loved it it's something that they Mm. they talk about a lot now what about proof of the pudding has it worked has it worked? It's definitely worked. It's it's um, H- um, Hannah who, who I was doing a bit of work with. She came back and she's talking about so many benefits. And it was one of the things I heard back, like because these kids would have um, a lot of challenges and there'd be a lot of um, disruption to be getting kicked out of class and stuff like that. And one of the things I tried to teach them was like like what can you control? Like you can't control your teachers. Your teachers may or not be getting annoyed. They may be picking on you for the right or wrong reasons. But what can you control? And I remember saying, if you just react and you shout and you you get angry, you're giving away your own power to somebody else. And I really tried to drive that message home. All you can control is your own response. It's very, very difficult, but it is in your control. And I remember hearing that um, somebody was going and talking to them and one of the kids said that back, says, I just don't talk back anymore. So what's the point? I'm just giving me power away. And when I heard that, I was like, that's real world Mm -hmm. stuff. And it's, it's really great. And just chatting to them and hearing them that they're using some of the techniques the more simpler techniques it's the low hanging fruit like breeding techniques I brought them into Trinity College to chat to Professor Ian Robertson and he sort of reaffirmed some of the techniques I was talking about simple breeding techniques and we we hadn't discussed it it just happened naturally and that sort of reaffirmed some of the stuff Mm -hmm. I was saying what about uh, trying to shift their ambitions for themselves? I mean, you are proof positive that someone who's had a really tough time and heroin addiction and so on, and suddenly you're a lecturer, um, you're a, a corporate talker and so on, and yeah. now you're doing this pro bono work, um, you, you're a success. Uh, but often kids can't aspire to do something that they cannot see. Yes, 100%. And this this was a danger because, like, to a certain extent, I'd be a, a little bit of an outlier. And when we brought them to Trinity College, we were to, we brought we had a day out in Trinity College, and we got great access from Trinity. And we we're saying this, this, these are the possibilities. But some of them might have been. I do a little bit intimidated on the day as well. And what I found with these young kids, there's a couple of core uh, topics that come up again and again and again. And it'll be self doubt, lack of confidence, self doubt, overthinking, anxiety. Some of the more the, the more obvious ones as well. But this self doubt and lack of confidence is a monster. So what I was really doing, I went in and I tried to speak to them and say, look, it's about baby steps. People see that, yeah, I'm a lecturer. I got my PhD, but that came from thousands and thousands and thousands of little steps. And I tried to make it concrete with them. It's about building a wall of evidence, brick by brick, putting in the little bit of study, putting in reading books, talking to people, reaching out. It's it's steps by step by step. Nothing happens 
like the best things in life take time. So I'm really trying to get them to reframe their beliefs around I can't do it, I'm not good enough to. I need to develop a growth mindset. I need to put one foot in front of the other, yeah. put another brick on the wall. Yeah, so it's not going to be a Disney moment. No. It suddenly happens. It's going to be, uh, as you say, brick by brick, you yeah. build. Um, you're only one person though, so uh, you know, there's the the so many schools could benefit from uh, yeah. the kind of experience that you offer. Yeah, so luckily enough, I got called on only recently, only yesterday. So I got asked to join a, a, a it's like a, an advisory panel, an expert advisory panel. So for it's for a, a project called Tackle Your Feelings, with the rugby players you, you, uh, union are looking after us. So I am um, hopefully I'm going and I'm learning more on that, giving my advice and experience on that as well. And we're going to be trying to reach loads and loads of schools. Going to try to reach every school in Ireland with that program. It's a very ambitious program, but again, it's going to be a little bit different. That's teacher led. I am only one person so it's about just trying to spread it as much as I can without depleting yeah. myself obviously yeah. well maybe uh, TED talk TED talk yeah they're, they're definitely it's it's organically moving in different directions I'm, I'm still in the beta testing phase where I'm finding out what works with these young kids and when yeah. I find out what works then I can start to build on that then after that you are brilliant absolutely Brian thank you very much for joining us in studio uh, Dr Brian Penny thank thanks you, for having thank me thank you so much The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.